Hi listeners, I'm Izzy, my pronouns are they and them. Welcome to the Critical Conversations for Social Work podcast. This is Joella. Before we start, we'd like to acknowledge the country that we're recording this episode on today and pay our respects to the Turrbal and Yagara peoples and their elders, past, present and emerging by committing to always remembering that this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Welcome to the Critical Conversations for Social Work podcast. My name is Jean Carruthers, my pronouns are she, her, and I am on Turrbal and Yuggera land. I would like to acknowledge the First Nations owners of this land and pay respects to elders past and present. So today I'm here with Matt. Thank you for being with us today. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. And thank you for having me in such a hallowed space. It's held so many great critical conversations in the past. I feel honoured to be part of that. My pronouns are he, him, his. And uh, I'd also like to acknowledge the Kwandamuka people in the land that I reside out. Wonderful. Yes. And I'm at on Cubby Cubby land usually. So okay, perfect. Cubby So Matt and I are going to explore and unpack the previous Part A episode, which was an amazing episode with Joe, Chris and Demi. And that was looking at restorative practices used when working with people who have experienced institutional harm. Yes. It was a great episode. It was absolutely. And it was really heartening to hear Chris and Joe speak so passionately about their experiences mm. and the experience expansion of restorative practices into that space. Yeah. Well. And I really liked how engaged Demi was in the so conversation. <laughs> I know, I know the question she was asking, it was amazing. So Matt, can you tell us a little bit about you and how you came to be part of this conversation? Okay. Um so I, Joanne Clark is my honours supervisor and my honours uses a critically reflective methodology and to answer the research question, which is how can critical reflection build parental agency to engage positively in conflict following separation? Okay. Yeah. Yes. So Jo has been excellent the entire way through and I feel so lucky to have her by my side as I step my way through that process, which has been long yet cathartic at the same time. Yeah. And Jo was the person that kind of recommended you and said it would be great for you to be part of this conversation, probably because you have a really strong critical framework to your Yes, practice. that's true as well. And yeah. um, the other thing that brings me to this conversation, of course, is my um, previous family court involvement as well. Yep. Yeah. So that was the other aspect that I thought was going to be yeah, pretty useful. And so even though this conversation isn't much about the family court or the court system and things like that because restorative practices is outside of it, but it's really relevant to the ways that we need alternatives yes, to the court system. Absolutely, because yeah. the court system is acrimonious and adversarial and in terms of co-parenting it pits one parent against each other Mm. and you end locked up into the cycle of attack defend attack defend not long after we split up i hired a lawyer because that seemed like the most obvious rational 
choice. Yes. You know, I don't know much about the family law system, so I'll hire somebody who does and they can argue for me. Yeah. So my former spouse then hired someone as well. And most of the time was spent giving my lawyer money so he could buy nice things for his family, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And he would construct very conflictual documents that he would then pass across to her lawyer who would then defend against that. Mm -hmm. And so it was just this constant repetition of attack, defend, attack, defend the entire way through. Yeah. And did that lead you to your honours? Oh, yes. Yes. Absolutely. Because, you know, coming into social work, I recognised how harmful my approach to um, child contact was and the harms that had occurred to myself and my former spouse through entering the judicial system to Mm. resolve what was essentially a relationship issue. But, Mm. you know, I ended up in that space and I I wanted to further unpack my own experience and what led me into that. So looking at the dominant discourses behind the legal system and how they perpetuate conflict. And it really sounds like from what you're saying that that was a form of institutional harm for you and your partner and your son um, in yeah. relation to the ways that that system uh, works and I guess the flaws in that system and the, the dominant discourses. What would you say are some of the discourses that were represented in that? Um, I think, yeah, you know, quite often and throughout my life, the legal system has always been constructed as the most obvious way to resolve problems in the legal sphere. So I think there's heavy influence of patriarchy in that system. I think Mm -hmm. there's paternalism in that system as well. And yeah, like I said, I think it really situates itself as the most obvious choice when really it should be considered the very last choice, Mm. especially if you're going to look to build a harmonious co-parenting relationship. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm aware that there is an expectation that people go to mediation first which there are So my experience in mediation was that it was a stop on the road to court. Mm. So like I said, I'd hired a lawyer almost immediately following our relationship breakdown and was looking to gain further time with my son. So I hired the lawyer and he said, well, look, we will have to go to mediation, but only to get the section 60I, I think it was, that allows us to go to court because that's, that's where we want to be. So mediation is to stop on the road. And he even presented to me as, well, we won't really need to do any work in that space. We'll just hire the mediator. They'll reach out to the other party and that other party will probably knock them back anyway. Mm -hmm. And then we'll be on our way to court. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess you wouldn't have questioned that because... No, because I, I, you know, at that stage, I hadn't entered the social work sphere at all. So that just seemed completely obvious and I had the support of my family at that time and I still do obviously but you know that was kind of all our rationale was that going to court is going to be the quickest and easiest way to resolve this. Mm -hmm. And I imagine that is being the dominant discourse of legal rational discourse that's kind of come from the enlightenment and those constructions where we don't have as much or religion doesn't have as much influence and it became more about a secular society. So historically that's happened. However, now I think it's that we're trying to debunk that and especially in social work and human services where we can recognise the flaws in those systems and the dominance of that legal rational being oppressive for people like yourselves within that process. Yeah, so I really liked 
what Chris and Joe were saying in relation to the alternatives to that. And I know their work was very different to the family law system in a sense because it was um, mostly around defence and working with people within the military. But I'm aware restorative practices are happening in lots of different places. Yeah, and it's so heartening to hear of that really happening and, you know, the positivity that can come from that as well. Yeah. You know, and the restoration of previously damaged relationships. Yes. And that's very different to, I mean, we talk a lot about neoliberal systems, you know, and the ways that social work and human services and like every sphere of society is becoming more recognized according to it, the contributions that you make to capitalism. Yes, which yeah. I think you've made some quite hefty <laughs> contributions <laughs> in that process. Yeah. I, I think um, one of the ways that I heard it best explained was that we're all viewed sort of in that way in terms of our individual contributions to capitalism insofar as we're homo economicus Ooh. as opposed to homo sapiens. These yes. Days. Yeah. So I thought that was an interesting term. I haven't heard that term it. before. Yeah. I like it. It's yeah. very interesting. Yeah. Not that I like no, the implications, of <laughs> no. course, no, the implications are dire. But yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, and also that idea of self-responsibility when we talk about neoliberalism and people having to be self-responsible. And which, self-sufficient. And self-sufficient, which kind of means that systems don't have to usually take responsibility for yes, the even harm. even though they might be complicit in the reproduction of that harm. That's they right. They can absolve themselves of complicity in that yes, way. Yes, because even you using that particular system, there were reasons why that was recognised as the most most efficient system. Yeah, or, or the, the most obvious The most choice. obvious yeah. choice. And, you know, at the time... I didn't recognize that there might even be any alternatives to it. I just viewed that as the only path. So yeah, yeah. what does that say about the impact of those discourses and the construction of common sense in approaching and utilizing them? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. No problem at all. So I was thinking that maybe we could talk a little bit about restorative practices and what they look like. I know that Joe and Chris have given a really good overview in part A and just I wanted to unpack that a little bit more because there's lots of big words or different words yes, yeah. from the words that we would usually lots use in too. lots of acronyms, yes. Um, so just unpacking that a little bit. Sure. I know from some of the research that our podcast crew did looking at its origins restorative practice derives from first nations peacekeeping Mm. and has traditionally been used in australia in youth justice schools adult criminal justice and to respond to community and workplace conflict now this in australia is reasonably new because in mental health started in around 2018 and 2019. But you're aware of this happening in Canada as well. Yeah. So my mother actually is involved in the court system as a facilitator there. And she mentioned to me previously that that systems of restorative engagement are starting to be brought in quite heavily there. And she noted um, a direct link to indigenized ways of doing from Canada. So it's interesting to see that, yeah, the Australian and Canadian variants of restorative engagement seem to both originate from indigenized ways of knowing. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Being and doing. 
And it's great to see that, uh, like we talk about in social work and human services, an Indigenous standpoint theory yes, and how that can be facilitated beyond Indigenous people's use as that as practitioners. But also I'm seeing that that Indigenous standpoint can be really supported in some of the broader practices, including these restorative practices that we can use. I think we undermine the value of Indigenous perspectives a lot in in society and it's great to see that these practices are being recognised for the value that they have, especially in areas such as legal and oh, for sure. And you know, I ratings. suppose that's that really is an impact of history being whitewashed. And yep. it's the same in Canada as it is in Australia. I remember doing social studies as part of like my grade seven unit in Canada. Yep. And hearing of the various tribes that were living in those parts previous to white people coming. Also, you had the Cree and the Iroquois and the Algonquin. But really, there was no discussion of the genocide that had gone mm. on in those parts as well. And the mm. same in Australia. Um, yes. When I came here and it was in grade 10 and I was doing our social studies units here, you might have heard of the various countries that were on that land previously but at no stage was there any acknowledgement even of the harms perpetuated by white people and the genocide again and the trauma of um, child removal. None of that yeah. was mentioned at all until I got to university. Yes. And um, it was Roz Derricott's unit, um, oh, SWB yes. 109. And yep. That was, was confronting, really yes. confronting, because that was the first time I heard of the true history yes of Australia it kind of makes me think of one of the terms that was used by Chris and Joe in relation to a collective injurious culture and yeah. so I think Indigenous peoples could really recognise, and I'll give a bit of a definition of that. So right. it's more the ways that it's linked to understandings of collective trauma. If we think about collective trauma as a shared psychological and emotional reaction to catastrophic events yes. affecting a very large number of people, the people surviving these terrible experiences not only have bad memories, but also suffer by trying to make sense of of them through mental reconstructions of those trauma events. The possible causes can be things like natural disasters, genocide, as you spoke of, and yes. um, in Chris and Joe's work, the impacts of war. And uh, I think it's really fantastic that this process is bringing that into a social and political context where there is an acceptance of harms being done, informed by the institutions that have expectations of people to do things that we wouldn't normally do and would be against our codes our and values. Codes. Yes, yeah. you know, uh, looking back at previous wars in the past, you know, it, it was recognised that they could be traumatic, but there were no real terms used to describe that and to mm. carry it forward. So I don't think it was until, was it Vietnam that really became recognised there was post-traumatic stress yes. disorder yep. inherent in those survivors of the war. Yeah. Whereas previous to that, it was shell shock, I think it was called. Yes. Yeah, yeah. but 
it didn't it didn't really go much deeper than that did it you know no however yeah. i think now when we think about post traumatic stress disorder and the ways that that's represented in biomedical discourse in the biomedical discourse yeah. it's become kind of the dominant way of thinking of those things mm-hmm. most people would be aware of the construction of post traumatic stress disorder and i think it's a a word that's commonly recognized in society most of the time something that joe was talking about in relation to that was post traumatic growth yes no yeah. that's absolutely right and i'll tell you my own experience it took me a while to get over the trauma of my experience in the family legal system as well yeah so i got so used to getting terrifying emails from my former spouse's lawyer that the noise that my phone would make when I got a notification became mm. a cause for significant anxiety. And I've like I've gotten over that now, but that really stuck with me for like even a year after we wrapped up our matter. So mm. I had to do some serious soul searching not long after it had all wrapped up and, you know, really rediscover myself again, I suppose. The strangest part of it all was that after we mediated on our final orders, I expected a massive sensation of catharsis Mm. and relief, whereas melancholy found me instead, you know? And I think that really has a lot to do with the amount of adrenaline that was constantly surging through my veins over that eight-year period. And finally, my body's went, you know what, enough is enough. Mm, (laughs) Now we need to take a serious break. But I had to, yeah, really rediscover myself and my passions. And because I was so focused on that conflict and just trying to reach the end of the line, that it really displaced practically everything else in my life at the time. Mm. So, And you had mentioned too in the pre-interview that we had Mm. um, recently that the same impact happened for your ex-partner in some of the things that you said something about having to be on on the stand and and that being yeah i think like at no stage do we ever have to be on the stand but i think those you're always worried that that's going to be the case and that you're Mm -hmm. going to be cross-examined by a lawyer that you would have seen on tv be it in like suits or jag or any of those shows that present that legal discourse as very adversarial and you know them trying to get to the bottom of your story but then depose you at the same time basically so there is certainly a terror that that is gonna become your reality Mm. so Mm. i think yeah it it does it can easily destabilize your mental health yeah being trapped in that system for so long that's right and i really liked the way that you had recognized it that the system was the thing that was perpetrating this yes, for yeah. you both. but then it's mm. it's also about your participation in those discourses that maintain them and perpetuate the conflict at the same time. So, you know, had I not engaged that system, had I, had I reached out to some form of alternative dispute resolution, had that been obvious to me through yeah. society, you know, then I think the relationship that I have with my former spouse could be much stronger mm. and less conflict prone. Yes, absolutely. And I also think, because I know, Matt, you've been studying social work and so you have social work values. This would have been totally against 
your moral code, your values in relation to that. And Joe was talking about that this idea of that we have to do things, so we have this collective injurious culture where we're, we're doing things that are against our moral code. And there was a term that she used, it was called, it creates a moral injury. Yes. And yeah. so moral injury in your regard, but also in the military service is when it requires people to engage in or witness acts that violate their moral, moral and personal va- moral code and yeah. personal values and therefore it becomes injurious because it's totally against the ways that you would have wanted to do to pursue that. change yeah but um, feeling like you had no choice that's right and mm. not only that it was no choice but like it's just so obvious that you would pursue resolution through that means. So, yeah, I could see, you know, as we went along, the harms that it was doing to my co-parenting relationship. But again, at that stage, I wasn't even aware of any other alternatives. So I felt, you know, trapped in that system. And I could see the destabilizing effect that it was having on what was left of my co-parenting rela- mm. arrangement. Um, but... You know, I, I kept I kept at it because I had no idea that there was even anything outside of that as possible. Mm, absolutely. So. And I guess that's a role that social work and human service can play in creating transparency about the processes that are available and the alternatives that yes. might be available for people that's right. and the ways that those systems work so that you can make an informed decision yes. that and might be more aligned with your which values. Which is why transparency is such a large part of my practice framework. Yeah. Yes. So I can imagine you're able to let people know of what they're going to be getting into and mm. the alternatives because mm. there are always alternatives. Let's be honest. There was numerous alternatives to the way I pursued that, but mm. if, if you're not made aware of it. So I certainly wish that I had entered the field of social work before all that uh, happened. Yeah. Yes. Had I even known Joe Clark or yourself before that yes. happened, you know, I'm sure that I wouldn't have been led down the garden path. as Yeah. Do you feel like that helped, having that analysis and everything helped you? Because it sounded like the the impacts, the emotional and psychological impacts for you were kind of synonymous to PTSD or not to label that. Yes. But do you feel like if you were to put it in that idea or the moral injury, do you feel like that helped to have those analyses to develop post-traumatic growth, I suppose. Yeah, no, I think, yeah, like I said, I I have achieved um, a semblance of post-traumatic growth. And I think a lot of that came from recognition of how my participation in those discourses led to a certain style of outcome. But my honours work, you know, looking at and unpacking those discourses has been really quenching for my soul Mm. at the same time. So Mm. I feel very lucky that I've been given an opportunity to look at that and to unpack those discourses and how my construction of those events was shaped by those discourses Mm. at the time. Sounds very transformative. (laughs) (laughs) And how. (laughs) So there was something else in relation to that I wanted to talk about and just bringing it back a little bit to the, certainly not to undermine your experience, bringing it back to the military service um, and the ways that uh, DART is what 
Chris called it, the Defence Abuse Response Task Force, using this initiative or the Defence Abuse Reparation Scheme to be able to support restorative practice in the military. And I think one of the things that really stands out to me is the ways that, and this is from my own background, like my father-in-law did 20 years of service in Vietnam. um, And so he does have a TPI and that's something that um, often is talked about in relation to the compensation that has been provided for people. Did we discuss what a TPI was? Now I can tell you what it is. It is total permanent incapacity claim. Yes. So to be able to get a TPI, you have to have a diagnosis of PTSD or physical injuries that indicate that significant trauma has happened. And so for men and women in the military, they do have to actually admit to that diagnosis being an issue. So having moral injury is probably something that everybody in the military would experience. And Joe spoke about those things as being two different things, but I do wonder if there's intersections of those that happen and why it is, because I know that there's a friend of my father-in-law who has been trying to claim TPI for 10 years and the emotional impact as well as the physical impact has been the things that that person has witnessed and participated in would have created a lot of distress and trauma. However, he won't admit to PTSD because he doesn't want to be held by that label and the stigma that sits behind that label. And being a proud Australian man... Yes, uh, that would conflict very heavily with notions of hegemonic masculinity, wouldn't it? Yes, absolutely. You know that men are stoic and men are unemotional and that men don't get emotional at all. So, and I can only imagine there would be a lot of other conditionality behind being able to see and claim a TPI as well. Yes, of course. Yes. Yeah. So that really comes back to neoliberalism again, doesn't it? Yeah. In terms of welfare and conditionality and the delivery and um, dissemination of welfare. Yes. And I do wonder about the institutional harm that those processes create because of that dominance of that biomedical idea that has to be present or it has to be uh, labelled or diagnosed. Or that the person must admit to their being that before they're able to pursue any resolution. Yeah. is ridiculous. So many conversations. Anyhow, I've gone on a tangent again. (laughs) Um, It's thoroughly enjoyable. (laughs) (laughs) But I do want to come back to the restorative practices and what they actually look like. In different um, contexts, they do look differently. For Chris and Joe, it seems that it's the restorative practices shaped in the way that it's about reconciling the harm or injustice that has occurred within the institution. And they're talking about the institution of defence. Yes. Um, However, this is not usually directly with a person that has directly perpetrated harm. Mm. It's more a representative of the institution that is acknowledging the harm on behalf of the institution and apologising to that person and creating that restorative conversation so that person gets to tell their story of harm and it gets to be acknowledged and accepted as the responsibility of the institution. 
So I think that's kind of different to restorative justice conferencing in relation to working with young people in the criminal justice system where they are seen as the perpetrator and they have to take responsibility within that process. But it's also about that person being supported to be able to have that accountability. That's right. And also to stay out of the court system, which I think is... is, And I suppose that really cuts quite sharply against Queensland's narrative of tough on crime, doesn't it? Yes. So I think I looked at the Strengthening Community Safety Bill of 2023 Uh, that Queensland recently passed, allocating, I think it was like an additional $66 million to police resources and presumption against bail laws and um, the construction of two new youth justice facilities so it's and even the language in the policies that are created at the moment there has been a lot of backlash and a lot of activism yes no absolutely behind that but Mm. i think there was a significant barrier to even making a policy submission for that bill because they only allowed two and a half days whereas typically it's you know a few weeks so it really destabilized stabilize the ability of things like Sisters Inside or the Caxton Legal Service to make a relevant, timely submission that could argue coherently against that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That sounds like neoliberalism at work there. Exactly right. Yeah, individual responsibility and individual feelings. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. In relation to restorative justice, I had some exposure to that when I was working in sexual assault. Yes. I didn't directly work with young offenders. A colleague of mine did work with young offenders and her role was to prepare the young offenders for restorative conferencing processes where they were to take accountability and they had the victim survivors or the victim survivors family tell their story of harm yeah and that's so powerful to the young offender really powerful uh for the young offender if Mm. we think of the intersections of oppression in relation to those things and not to ever condone um, sexual offending in any way, shape or form. Of course. A lot of preparation, and I'm talking about months and months of preparation for that person to be ready to be able to sit in that space of being accountable for those acts. And I do think that process is such a sensitive process and I really liked the way Chris and Joe were saying how Mm. much preparation needs to go into that and I imagine for the victim survivors to be able to sit in that space as well. Oh yeah, how much preparation Um, would they need before they are comfortable telling their traumatic story and how it re-traumatised them or... Yes, because we can't ever anticipate whether that's going to be an empowering experience or not, we can assume that it's a part of an empowerment approach. However, empowerment's a personal thing. It's a subjective thing that people can experience or not. Yeah. 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 You couldn't look at that modernistically, could you? No. No. So I just wanted to share that because it's it's sort of how I have seen restorative practices in the past, but Mm. also recognising that in these processes, they've taken 
sort of measures to really prepare well, create the space. And there's a particular kind of model. And I think part of that model, there's specific processes even before there's a meeting. And so meeting with people and looking at the the statements. Well, because really it sits so far outside of the dominant discourse, doesn't it? That's people would be completely you know, blown away that such a thing even exists or is possible. So to prepare themselves to enter that that space and that state of, sure. of sitting, you know, yeah. with traumatic experiences and accountability, it's miraculous. Absolutely could be amazing. really powerful and it's, it's certainly, certainly progressive, but it's not everything either. Like if we were preventing these things from happening in the first place yeah. that would be really important and yeah. I imagine from a critical perspective the systemic harm uh, and the motivation for social change mm. within these processes mm. I guess it's one part of that that's true as but well. it's not all of it and with mm. Australia's tough on crime narrative I suppose that would be seen as quite a soft approach yeah. as well you know yeah allowing the the perpetrator to kind of oh just say I'm sorry you know yeah that's yeah. right yes yeah. and what is the other reparation that's right that is actually happening happening alongside that that's that right. I know no for First Nations people like the apology was such a powerful thing mm. but if we don't do anything beyond that's the apology right. then they just become words don't yes they? yeah that's right that's right and then there's conversations uh, that we're having now that's in right. relation to the voice yeah. and in relation to treaty that yeah. to make certain that it's not just lip service yeah which just happens time and time again yeah that's yeah. right and i really do need to acknowledge the wealth of knowledge and experience that Chris and Joe bring from their respective fields, yeah. fields like yeah. Chris coming from a law background and Joe coming from a social but they work background. so harmoniously together. Don't they? And I've actually heard Chris say that she wishes she found social work first before law. Yes. Yeah, I've heard her say that too. So, yeah. Lovely to I think she's she's a great that. Um, social work lawyer. Yes, for <laughs> yes. sure. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Oh, she's lovely. So, in relation to the actual process itself, just for the listeners to have a bit of an understanding, they do talk about having active statements where it's encouraged that the person is speaking from their own personal experience, speaking about the emotionality of that experience yeah, because that's also and the powerful. injustice of that experience, I think, is really a big part of this process. And that's what I really like is that it's recognising and acknowledging it's harm, it's called harm, but it is an injustice that has happened. Yeah, and that really Um, showcases the power of qualitative That's right. So meeting with someone and that person asking restorative questions and recognising those things, I guess negotiating those questions with the person that's part of that process. So they actually have some power in that process. For sure, to co-construct it. Absolutely. Some impromptu restorative meetings, circles, and um, and restorative formal meetings. So I'm not sure what that looks like uh, because I've never been part of that in relation to what Chris and Joe are doing. That's right. But I, I can imagine, only wish I was part of it. Yeah, there are potentially different processes for different people. I mean, Chris was talking about how it's often people from marginalised and disadvantaged backgrounds are people that are often 
part of these processes and the institutional harm because of racism, because of gender inequality and patriarchy, because of homophobia and like people experiencing harm because of their sexual identity that they choose to identify as. So, Well, and I think that really goes to show that the power and the possibility of social work in that space. Yes, definitely. Because that all aligns perfectly with critical social work. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, look, we could talk about this forever. Yeah, are you sure we have to pack it up here? Couldn't we Um, stay for another few hours? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I do want to point out a few things. Like um, I'm not going to go into detail into this, but some of the theories that come from social work and human services that I recognised in that process were trauma-informed practice at the outset in relation to coming with a trauma-informed perspective. The process in itself, would sit really comfortably in that trauma-informed space. Anti-oppressive practices, recognising the intersections of marginalisation that people might experience and how that process might have to be different because of that, Um, how it might be a more informal circle in some respects or it might be a more formal in relation to how that's negotiated in the context and for the person whose lived experience this is uh, regarding. A narrative approach telling their stories, such a powerful opportunity to be able to tell your story in the way that you want to and so that it's being heard Yeah. and the acknowledgement that, yes, it will be heard and the injustice within that will be heard as well and that opportunity for that to be the reparation of relationships within that, I guess. Yeah, to be based around that. Yeah. yeah that's, that's, for me, the most powerful. Yeah. yeah. And on a final note, I just wanted to say that I really loved the part where they talked about the process being the outcome. I'm aware we didn't talk about the forgiveness stuff. I would have liked to unpack that, but that's like probably a whole nother episode. Only to say that I agree with Chris that forgiveness isn't something that I think needs to happen for people to be able to have a transformative experience Mm. or to have reparation or to have post-traumatic growth in these processes it should never be our expectation as social workers that people need to forgive no exactly but you've got your own ideas on forgiveness as well yeah i think looking back i do need to forgive myself for participating in those discourses and for viewing it as the only possible way forward and yeah bit of forgiveness around how I felt I was treated by the legal system and yeah. other people there as well, who I won't mention. You know, yes, but yeah, of course. there is certainly a lot of room for forgiveness in that space. Yeah. 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 It's really interesting. And I think for people, if forgiveness is something that supports them and helps them, that's great. And if it's not, then that's okay too. Yeah. yeah, that's the beauty of post-structuralism. For sure, it? it depends on the person, depends on the experience, depends on the context. Yeah. yeah. And the Brilliant. environment. Is there anything else that you would like to share before we finish up? Um, like I said, not unless we had another two hours to go through things. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but thank you so much for having me here today and um, allowing me to be part of these great conversations that I hope you'll continue to have yes. as we move for the future. Thank yeah. you. No problem at all. And something to take away the process is the outcome. That was something Joe said. It requires vulnerability for the institutions 
as well as the person and uh, I think that's something that we could honour is that element of vulnerability being part of that process. Yeah, I think that's yeah. something that we as people and we as humanity all need to showcase. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, thank you so much, Jean, and thank you so much to the crew as well yes. for playing a massive part in it's helping definitely, this all come together yeah, so well. always a collective effort. And thank you to you, Matt. It's been a wonderful conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Me too. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to this critical conversation. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, feel free to subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or YouTube. And if you would like to keep up with us outside of the podcast, feel free to follow our socials on Instagram and Facebook. Just search for Critical Conversations, the number four, SW, all in one word. We look forward to you joining us next week.